November 22nd, 1963, I was a student in fourth grade. My mother was the one who told the teacher of the class that I was in that President Kennedy had been shot and had died. Everybody has their own story of that day, anybody who was alive. But the story of that day wound up becoming what we now call viral. And it was viral, too, in the sense that it infected many aspects of our culture. We're going to talk today not just about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but the way that it changed so many things, ranging from journalism to movies and television, even to music. We're going to talk about a very unusual Bob Dylan song you may not know about. So stay with us as we revisit certain aspects of life after the Kennedy assassination. We're doing this show to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. I want to mention, first of all, I'll mention that I was in fourth grade when this happened, so I I do have relatively clear memories of that day. But I want to talk about somebody else just for two seconds. His name is George Michael Ivica. He was a professor of English, but he became obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. He taught at the University of Hartford, but he became very well known in this kind of greater Kennedy assassination community. And he wrote a book called We Are All Mortal, the title being derived from, uh, I think, Kennedy's commencement speech he gave in in that same year, 1963. Then he started to host this almost kind of Don DeLillo type weekly talk show called Assassination Journal, where he would tie together all kinds of different conspiracy theories. And I became very fascinated with him. I knew him as a person. I eventually wrote a newspaper profile of him. And I went to see him teach his class, his English class, which was about poetry and had nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination, except that he said this thing that stayed with me, which is that every civilization has a myth, a paradisical myth, where there's perfection, there's Eden, and then something goes wrong. The egg is cracked. There's a flaw in the jewel. Paradise isn't perfect anymore. And that the job of the arts— is to sing and dance and pray and speak and recite and heal the crack in the egg somehow, or at least attempt to do that. That stayed with me for a long time. I hope it sort of becomes clear the relevance today. Let's hear a little bit of words collected on the street by two of our interns, Joey Morgan and Letitia Peters, who went out and asked people about their recollections. All right, so what do you remember about the JFK assassination? The memory that I do have is just watching the the motorcade coming down and then seeing pandemonium after that. I was young, I was still, I was young, so me watching the videos over, that's that's what really reflects six out of my mind is that part. I think everybody my age remembers they were in, sitting in class at two or three in the afternoon. I was not born yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> me either, so I don't, I don't have any memories either. I mean, history class, but that's about it. Yeah, I was not even close to being born by that time. So, no. I have, like, seen documentaries of it. I was not a twinkle in my parents' eye at the time of the JFK assassination. No, we didn't grow up this country. I knew that happened, but I don't remember exactly everything. It was a plot from the beginning because of who he was and of course because of his family ties also. Okay? I remember I was in fourth grade when it happened. I can remember hearing about it in our gymnasium, and everybody was crying, and they let school out early. It was on, I believe it was on a Friday that that happened. It was a very sad day, very sad day. So now joining us is Steve Rose, assistant features editor at The Guardian. He has written a piece called It Splintered Our Sense of Reality, How JFK's Assassination Spawned 60 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Also a piece called Abraham Zapruder, the man behind history's most infamous home movie. Steve Rose, I will attempt to tie those two pieces together. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the fact that the Zapruder film is in a way a metonymy or has a metonymous relationship to everything that failed to work as a verification system at that time. In other words, we were coming out of World War II. There was a lot of new technology that seemingly would enable us to understand unfolding events, solve certain kinds of mysteries. We might have been feeling pretty optimistic about our ability to understand certainly something as massive as the assassination of a president in a very public space. And to the point of both of your pieces, the Zapruder film, even though it was what it was, it really failed to create common agreement about what had happened. And that was a symptom of a larger disease, right? A disease where 
we couldn't really settle this incredibly pressing question? Yes, I think in the same way that retrospectively people trace back the Kennedy assassination to a moment where some sort of reality broke for the American kind of like psyche or the kind of like accepted notions of trust in government and sort of like certainty about the world sort of were shattered. I think you could possibly say the same about the Zabruder footage itself in that it rather, one would think that a documentary evidence of this event was some sort of, you know, thing that could be analysed to ascertain what definitely happened. But in a way, it's actually demonstrated is the inherent instability of photographic images as a kind of source of record in that it's been interpreted in different ways. A lot of people see different things in it. A lot of people claim it's not true. A lot of people claim it says this. A lot of people claim it says the opposite. So we're seeing as a, a sort of like a shift from, you know, photographic documentary evidence being some sort of like source of truth to actually being an actual source of conspiracy theory itself. And that the conspiracy theories are inherent in this document that can be read in different ways. And we've seen that time and again since, you know, any kind of like event that happens, people don't trust or accept the kind of reality of photographic evidence. One looks at 9-11, for example, all manner of conspiracies came about, but they all used the same footage. You know, not everything can be true. So in a way, it's kind of the media itself came to be undermined. And it all goes back to the Zapruder and the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, we think here in the U.S. now about being in kind of an epistemic crisis where really obviously competing versions of reality are treated kind of almost on an equal basis, even though one of them may be extremely false. We're living in the time of alternative facts and fake news and all that kind of stuff. But in a way, this is the beginning of that downhill toboggan ride. There's the Warren Commission, which is a massive undertaking by the federal government to try to lay this whole matter to rest. It kind of does the opposite. And it's not a very long toboggan trip from there to the Vietnam War, where people had begun to decide that you couldn't trust the information coming out about that, too. Maybe you could say a little bit more about how you see that progression. Well, I think, I mean, first of all, the the facts of the Kennedy assassination itself, people were like, they didn't feel like it was a satisfactory answer that the Warren Commission came up with. They were like, how could this have happened? How could it just be one person, you know, that could actually like, you know, tilt America on its axis, you know, with just like an old gun, you know, and they thought there must be more to it. And possibly there is, no one really knows, and I'm not going to make any judgment on it. But as the 60s kind of unwound, and, you know, various other events, Watergate, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, you know, and all these, you know, the Vietnam War and uh, US intervention in various countries. And uh, a lot of this was actually, a lot of these things were actually conspiracies. So the conspiracy theorizing about, you know, what the government was really doing in general started to escalate. And uh, I think it became a kind of countercultural position that, you know, the sane position was that your government is lying to you. You can't trust your government. And I think there was a statistic that in the, at the time of Kennedy's assassination, I think there was trust in U.S. public trust in the federal government was 75 percent. By the mid 1970s, after all this happened, it was below 40 percent. And it's never really recovered. It's steadily gone down since then, in fact. By the 70s, some of that distrust had made its way into culture, people creating fictional narratives are beginning to tap into that kind of dark energy of paranoia. So yeah, you have movies like The Conversation, The Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor. You have writers starting to tackle it in novel form. Writers like Thomas Pynchon become real apostles of that same kind of paranoia, ultimately maybe culminating to a certain degree in the work of Don DeLillo. We'll come to him in just a second. But there's something going on there, right? Now, I, I didn't mention executive action. That's another one. But there, there's a sense that, well, if we can't get the story right in the world of history and journalism, maybe we can get it right at least by telling fictional versions of it. But I, I'm wondering what kind of energy you see going into that enterprise. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in both cinema and in the sort of general sort of public refusal to accept official versions of events, things really came to the head ahead in the 70s, kind of probably a good decade after the Kennedy assassination, when people were really starting to process these things into cinema and into literature. Because I mean, one of the executive action you mentioned, which is kind of like a possibly counterfactual, but possibly, you know, sort of like, this is what happened. But it was kind of like a, like how we plotted the Kennedy assassination film, if for those who haven't seen it. And it does it with sort of like quite authoritative, kind of serious intent. They'll deny a conspiracy down to the last man, lay the whole thing off on the 
Some crazy damn fool who did it all on his own. Who's the crazy damn fool? He'll be provided. Charlie McCadden just called from El Paso. Governor Connolly has just left the president. And they made a private agreement that he will make a political pilgrimage to Texas to woo votes, probably in the fall. One of the authors on that was Mark Lane, who wrote one of the first books about the Kennedy assassination in, I think it was about 1966, basically criticizing the Warren Commission and saying, you not being told the truth. And that was a bestseller. It was on the bestseller list for like two years. So there was already a sense that not only was the JFK assassination kind of like spawning these conspiracy theories, it was also spawning a conspiracy theory industry. And that sort of played out in literature, but it also played out in the movies especially as we got into the 70s, where there was, uh, you know, post-Watergate and post-Vietnam and post-RFK, and all these things gradually fed into this kind of feeling of general, there's something wrong in America, you know, you're right to be paranoid. And the plots, the JFK plot was, you know, kind of like an inspiration of many of these films and fed into them. And, you know, the general kind of mode of a lot of 70s thriller, which made some great, great cinema, but the general mode was kind of paranoia and fear of surveillance and fear that you're being watched and as I said before, the inherent instability of media, if you look at the conversation, it's very much about that was 1973, but it's talking about a surveillance expert who is trying to sort of pass the meaning of audio kind of footage that he's obtained covertly, which details a political assassination or an assassination or a plot or a conspiracy that he's trying to interpret this was very much kind of like what the public was doing as well at this time, trying to, everyone became a sort of armchair expert in the Kennedy assassination. Everyone had consumed the literature. Everyone had their own theories. And it even, even transpired in, you know, Woody Allen's Annie Hall in 1977. Oh, I'm getting tired of it. I need your attention. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense. He drove past the book depository and the police said conclusively that it was an exit wound. So how is it possible for Oswald to have fired from two angles at once? It doesn't make sense. Housie, you're using this conspiracy theory as an excuse to avoid sex with me. So by then it was like, it was popular imagination that everyone was in on the joke. It was just a, a comedy thing that everyone was sort of like in the same kind of a mindset. Yeah, it becomes a placeholder for the unresolved nagging question, the thing that, you know, that you, is it's going to bother you. And yes, I mean, there's that great scene, as you say, in Annie Hall, 21 or so years later in the movie Armageddon, Bruce Willis and his gang of oil rig roughnecks are about to go into space and save all of humankind from an onrushing asteroid. And they're in a position to ask for things. Noonan's got two women friends that he'd like to see made American citizens, no questions asked. Chick wants a... Four weeks, Emperor's Package at Caesar's Palace. Uh, hey, you guys wouldn't be able to tell us who actually killed Kennedy, would you? It is this sort of original sin, you know, question that is just going to nag at us for a really long time. But I think we do need to talk about DeLillo. DeLillo is just the master of paranoid fiction generally and the kind of person who seems to see around corners a little bit. He eventually writes the novel Libra, which is uh, written from the perspective somewhat of Oswald's mother. There are other people in it, but there's a retired CIA agent named Nicholas Branch who's trying to kind of just push all this stuff together. He's been given access to kind of everything. And I don't know, what, what do you make of Libra? It isn't a no novel that gives us answers, but what does DeLillo want to give us? Well, I mean, in, in a classic DeLillo sense, he's got like, he's, he's leaving it to you to try and work out what he's giving you. And there are no easy answers. And uh, that's part of the reason that, that people love him, because you can read his work in so many different ways. But one of, the, one of the things that really struck home to me about Libra in particular was the Nicholas Branch character, who's basically given this vast repositories of material and basically tasked with making sense of it out of a lot of disparate kind of like pieces of information. And this is essentially DeLillo telling us this is kind of the conspiracist mode, which is just trying to sort of fashion meaning and sense out of a sort of chaotic, random sort of uh, world, basically, because otherwise, you know, all that's left is despair. And I think this is part of the this is part of the appeal of conspiracy theory itself, that a lot of people, you know, are attracted to this because having a story and having an explanation is more comforting than the alternative. I mean, it might make you feel powerful in yourself as well, but it also makes you, as the character in Delilah's novel, you know, feel like you can get on and exist in the world. 
And also, I think Delillo is smart enough to know that this is the also the instinct of the artist is to tell stories, to fashion stories. And, you know, the narrative itself is very appealing and very uh, seductive. And it's kind of like, you know, makes us feel like there is meaning in our lives and that we are human. So I think he's kind of self-reflective enough to almost draw a parallel between himself as an artist and a writer and conspiracy theorist and say, we're this is what we're all doing. I think that also perhaps explains why the conspiracy theory industry is kind of so successful because people want to hear a story. People want to know that there's a meaning behind it. And I don't think you're going to sell as many books or get sell as many cinema tickets if you say there isn't a story behind it. Yeah. You know, Branch, the character from Nicholas Branch refers to the Warren report as the megaton novel James Joyce would have written if he'd moved to, moved to Iowa City and lived to be 100. And he describes being in the presence of all this stuff. Baptismal records, report cards, postcards, divorce petitions, canceled checks, daily timesheets, tax returns, property lists, post-operative x-rays, photos of knotted string, thousands of pages of testimony of voices droning in hearing rooms in old courthouse building, an incredible hall of human utterance. He just describes all this evidence there and you realize that the profusion of evidence is what makes it so hard to come to any kind of conclusion, that there's enough evidence to construct multiple narratives and difficult to pick the one that should be canonical. I just, you know, in the moments that we have left, uh, you know, you talked about the conspiracy industry. Obviously, we were entertained by the conspiracy industry in the 90s, with the TV show The X-Files, which is sort of explored every possible conspiracy, the main one being the concealment of UFO information, which turns out to have been somewhat more true than maybe even the makers of the X-Files entirely understood. And now, you know, we seem to live in some kind of veil of conspiracy culture. It's Alex Jones. It's anti-vaxxers. It's the QAnon conspiracy theory, which includes JFK Jr. and maybe even a superannuated JFK maybe coming back from God knows where. The big lie about the American election and the the recrudescence of the Kennedy name in politics with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is an anti-vax conspiracy theorist. It's, it's, it's as though time really is a flat circle. We've We've circled all around all the way around to the Kennedy conspiracy, except now it's a Kennedy who's distributing conspiracy ideas. I don't know. Is there is there anything dispositive that we can say about all that? Mm, well, <laughs> the world is still turning. Society is still just about intact, I suppose. I think the X-Files has a lot to answer for in terms of it actually made the conspiracist mode that we'd seen in the kind of counterculture years sort of cool. Why weren't we told the truth? We didn't know the truth. What we knew would only have slowed you down. You can't protect the public by lying to them. It's done every day. And by the 90s, this was kind of like, yeah, this is all, this is all it all fits together. And, and then, then basically it was a pre-internet era where this, this kind of knowledge was still on the fringes and was something dangerous and exciting about it. And then the internet happened. And I think the internet brought with it new ways to find audiences and to monetize content and to go viral and you know, to perpetuate more outlandish theories because they made money and they sold and they made impact. And it's, you know, we saw the same with the, with Alex Jones and, the, and his ilk, that conspiracism has become a business and an industry. And something somewhere, which I think is what really needs exploring, and I'm sure people are, is what flipped when it became in the 60s and 70s, it was a very left-wing position that, you know, the government is lying to you and the government is against you and, you know, the invisible government. Now it's become quite a far right position that the deep state is out there trying to thwart, you know, kind of like normal kind of regular activity and stuff. So I think that that kind of flip has sort of changed a lot about the way that society operates. And it's changed a lot about what we believe that was already inherently kind of like problematic. So, yeah, where we go from here, I think, is understanding what happened. I think is really the key. Yes. We'll stop there. Although I do want to say, apropos what you just said, one term that has come into prominence, particularly led by a group of kind of thought leaders about it, is the term conspirituality, which refers to the notion that there's 
been a, almost kind of joining of hands around the dark side of the moon from people from the far right and people from the far left. They're kind of united in their questioning of authority, of canonical truth. And so the nice lady on the yoga mat next to you with the vegan cookbook with her may have as many questions and as many kind of conspiracy theory driven doubts as some gun-toting Alex Jones fan in Texas too. This is becoming much more complicated than it used to be. Steve Rose is assistant features editor at The Guardian. Thank you so much for talking to me. Pleasure. Thanks very much. We have another Stephen available to talk about this here in this segment. We're going to talk about how it changed the press. We are very fortunate to have with us Stephen Battaglio, writes about television and the media business for the Los Angeles Times and recently wrote about how the Kennedy assassination changed TV news and the journalists who covered it 60 years ago. I do remember a little bit of this what it was like when television, which was still in a relatively primitive state in 1963, suddenly kind of emptied itself out of all of its usual content. And we really did experience this sort of marathon coverage of an event that began, obviously, with the shooting, but then kind of spilled out over across days and the eventual shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby. This was a kind of acid test for the way journalism worked at the time. And I think the argument can be made that the journalism had to kind of transmogrify. It had to respond to all the demands that were placed on it by the Kennedy assassination and its aftermath and, and, and maybe grow and change. How would you describe that growth and change? At that point, television was did not have the same status as radio and newspapers, at least in the consumer's mind as a primary source of news. There was not a lot of news on television. The evening newscasts really up until just a couple months before this happened were only 15 minutes long on the three networks. They had just expanded in September to a half hour. But even those programs, there were summaries of the news. There wasn't a lot of uh, really new reporting on them. And you certainly didn't see very much that was live. The stories were shot on film. They were shipped to New York. And maybe they showed up the next day or two after they were edited. So it was, it was very packaged. There was not a lot of immediacy. The Kennedy assassination changed all that. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, documentaries about the coverage, you, you, you see how CBS News had to find a studio for Walter Cronkite. They didn't even have a, a, a camera ready for him to go on the air. That took time. And, of course, since then, we've seen that very iconic image of him taking off his glasses, looking up at the clock. From Dallas, Texas, the Flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. And from that moment on, you saw hours and hours of continuous coverage. They did not leave the air. They didn't run any commercials. And remember, there were only three networks. People didn't have any choice. There was nothing else on television that weekend. The National Football League played their games that Sunday. They were not shown. This was it. And people couldn't get enough of it. They just sat transfixed in front of their TVs for days through that Monday when Kennedy was buried at his funeral. You know, another big difference in this compared to a lot of the things that have been covered in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that here was something that took place in a very public space, a presidential motorcade of all things. and and at, But at that moment, the Zapruder film being not even known about, there were no pictures. That is an odd thing about this, that these TV reporters so bound to the visual image didn't have any visual images to show, at least not at first. Well, actually, this is an example of user-generated content. You had Abraham Zapruder, the, the Dallas dressmaker, who shot the 26-second home movie that captured the actual moment of impact when Kennedy was hit. There were other snapshots in the crowd. There were other movie cameras in the crowd. And that's really the beginning of what we have today when everyone carries a mobile device and can capture what happens in front of him. What happened after the Kennedy assassination is that there was a live camera on the president all the time. The president became the center of all news coverage after this event going forward. I think also there may be one of the other pieces of fallout from all this is kind of a sense of how 
how you handle situations of major breaking news when you have to go live on the air, how you comport yourself. I mean, people like Cronkite set a certain standard. And I have this weird recollection of when Ronald Reagan was shot by John Hinckley. I think it was Frank Reynolds kind of broke on the air. He got really mad at one point. He was wounded. My God. He was, uh, the president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, speak up. One shot, stable condition. All this that we've been telling you uh, is incorrect. And it seems to me that one of the kind of Olympic events now that you have to meddle in if you're going to be good at this kind of anchoring is how you handle a breaking news situation where there's a sort of fog of war, right? You don't really know everything that's happening. And I wonder if you think that it was, in fact, November of 1963, where the standard kind of got set for this. I think it certainly created the template for dealing with a crisis. You know, Going forward, it got a lot more complicated with all the different sources that we have now. It'll, if we have another crisis like this, it'll be a real test of the system that we have in place now where everything is so fragmented. People really create their own information bubbles. How will the next crisis break through? And will people sort of absorb it all in the same way as they did during the Kennedy assassination? It's going to be a big test. Again, that that template was set in 1963, and it really lasted for a remarkably long time. We've seen revolutions live coming from other countries. We've seen America go to war in Iraq live. We've gotten used to this immediacy and the collective experience of watching it together. That has changed. And how that affects our psyche for the next one of these crises, it's a big question. Let's hope we have to wait a while before we find that out. Stephen Battaglio writes about television and the media business for the Los Angeles Times. All right, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Okay, that song is Warmth of the Sun by the Beach Boys, which is probably the most famous song tied to the Kennedy assassination. The problem being that most people don't know that. In other words, Mike Love and Brian Wilson apparently wrote that song on the day of the assassination of JFK, 60 years ago, and they were inspired is probably the wrong word, but their emotions were stirred in a particular way to write this kind of oddly sad but sun-soaked song. Is there a great song about the Kennedy assassination? In the previous segment, we talked about the way it has just seeped into and soaked into literature, cinema, television. 
I think music is a harder thing. You know, it's hard to contain so much. One could say that the Kennedy assassination contains multitudes, which would set up, of course, Bob Dylan and Walt Whitman very well. And we are going to talk about the former. Bob Dylan has, in fact, recorded. You might have missed it. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic when you were worried about a lot of other things. He recorded a song more than 16 minutes in duration, 16 minutes and 56 seconds. But who's counting? The longest song he has released by 25 seconds, about the Kennedy assassination. It's called Murder Most Foul. The title, of course, comes from Hamlet. Timothy Hampton is professor of comparative literature and French at the University of California at Berkeley and the author of several books, including Bob Dylan's Poetics, How the Songs Work. So melodically, this song is not going to keep Gershwin's ghost up at night. It's almost a, a chanted song. I think you refer to it as an incantation. So if you were to describe this almost 17 minute long song to somebody who hadn't heard it before, what its thrust or ethos or s- sort of core is, what would you say? Well, it's, it's a recounting of the assassination of JFK. So it's a kind of an historical reconstruction of what happened was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. The day that will live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die. He led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb. He said, wait a minute, boys. You know who I am. But it's told from about three different perspectives at the same time. It's told from the perspective of the president himself, who's inside whose mind we are as he is being driven to the hospital. There's also a kind of narrator figure who is the kind of Dylan figure who's called Son. And to him is explained the meaning of what's actually going on. So it's told from, as they say, several points of view at once. So we get that historical reconstruction of Kennedy's death and an attempt to come to terms with, in fact, what it means for American culture. And the last, the most famous part of the song probably is the last verse and a half or so, which is a long list of pieces of American music that Kennedy asks to hear as he's being driven to the hospital. And it's a kind of soundtrack to our age. Play another one and another one bites the dust. Play the old rugged cross and in God we trust. And it's an important commentary, it seems to me, on the role of music in American life as something that can bind us together. And so it's an attempt to come to terms with uh, not only a catastrophic historical event and to evoke it sort of from the inside out, but also to talk about what it means. Yeah, and and we should say that it's almost as though, just to return to my first point, it's almost an acknowledgement maybe that one song won't really do it. So this is a 17-minute song, but it's also a song about songs, the person being asked to play those songs at the end. And we can talk about what kinds of songs they are, or, or those musicians. Sometimes he just mentions Oscar Peterson or somebody like that that he wants to hear. He seems to be talking to Wolfman Jack, the famous DJ who operated for a long time kind of a pirate show, I believe, out of Mexico. And Wolfman Jack himself is an almost ghostly or mysterious figure or kind of was at the time. He was somebody people knew about without necessarily being able to lay eyes on. And I wonder what you think the significance of that is. Well, I think that's exactly right. And to go back to your initial point that the title of the song comes from a moment in Shakespeare's Hamlet. So this is the moment where young Hamlet meets his the ghost of his father on the battlements in Elsinore. And his father reveals to him that he has been murdered by Hamlet's uncle. Murder. Murder most foul as in the best it is. Meaning it's bad enough to murder somebody, but if you're killing your own brother and your king, it's, it's very bad. And so I think the sense of ghosts runs, or the, the presence of ghosts runs throughout the song. And Wolfman Jack is a perfect sort of impersonation, if that's really the word, of the ghostly role of music in our lives. Wolfman, oh Wolfman, oh Wolfman, how? Rub-a-dub-dub, it's a murder most foul. So we get the sense that Wolfman Jack, as, as the Wolfman, as the kind of werewolf figure, is the, is the man who speaks at night, because he used to broadcast at night. 
from XARB across the border in Mexico, one of the so-called pirate radio stations. And so I think the sense of Wolfman Jack as the ghostly voice who brings our music to us is really important because the whole song is about haunting and about the haunted nature of American life and the way in which our country is haunted by the violence that has marked its history. And so Wolfman Jack's the perfect voice, the perfect medium to bring not only the sense of, of ghostliness, but also the history of our music to the listener. Yeah, and there's a, the music that he cites, the music that the singer asks for, is kind of interestingly curated, too. It's maybe not even exactly some kind of canonical list you would associate with Bob Dylan. If anything, illustrates his own omnivorous tastes in music. But is there some other way that you could describe that? No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there there are a few moments where we, we sense that there's a kind of order to some of the songs, a kind of suggestion through the sound of titles or phrases that come to mind so that he says, play Moonlight Sonata in F-sharp, which, by the way, Moonlight Sonata is not in F-sharp, but he <laughs> says, play Moonlight Sonata in F-sharp, play Key to the Highway by the King of the Harp. So he's he's clearly just riffing there on kind of what comes into his mind. But there is a real sense in the list of songs that he's calling for. There's a real sense that he's, dig- Dylan, that is, is digging into the kind of hidden history of American music. So there's a wonderful moment where he says, take me back to Tulsa, to the scene of the crime. Well, take me back to Tulsa is an old Western swing song that was recorded by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in the 1940s. Take me back to Tulsa, I'm too young to marry. Take me back to Tulsa, I'm too young to marry. And you might say, okay, isn't that great? Take me back to Tulsa. But Dylan says, take me back to Tulsa, to the scene of the crime, at which point we can only assume that he's referring to the famous Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, which, as we know, visited unbelievable violence on the African-American community in Tulsa. So he's saying that a song like Take Me Back to Tulsa, which may seem innocent, actually is deeply connected to the violence of American history. And I think if you work your way through those songs, you'll find that many of them contain in them references to violence, racism, murder, murder most foul. And uh, so Dylan's asking us, it seems to me, to think about the nature of our popular culture, about our historical backgrounds, about the role that music has played. I mean, the one hand, on the one hand, popular music is one of the things that binds America together. It's our national conversation in some way. I mean, witness Taylor Swift, witness Willie Nelson, whoever you want to witness. But it's also deeply connected to our history and to the violence of our history, which is often trying to tear us apart. So I think Dylan wants us to think about our music in all of its complexity. Is there also some kind of life reckoning that's there in this song? I think I'm doing my math right that Dylan's 22 or so at yes. the time of the assassination. Yes. So this is something he's lived with for his adult life. This yes. um, this is, I'm not saying it is tinctured every single aspect or every single day and week and month and year of his entire life, but it, it's there, threaded through his entire life. And, and so at the age of 80 or so, <laughs> he suddenly does this 17-minute song. And, yeah. and I don't know. Do you have a sense maybe that this song wasn't written in an afternoon, but is really kind of the product of a lot of time living alongside some of these questions and answers? I think so. I mean, I think Dylan from the very beginning must have been haunted by the violence of the Kennedy assassination, as indeed many people were. But this came right at the moment that he was beginning to rise to eminence. And we know, of course, that he was deeply connected to the civil rights movement. We know that when Dr. King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, Dylan was 20 feet away from him on the podium. He had performed at that event. So the Kennedy assassination must have hit him in the guts. And it's interesting that he would go to the assassination of JFK as a kind of turning point or kind of punctual moment in American history. There, you know, other people might go elsewhere. And there are many histories, of course, about the 1960s that we know that would point to the King assassination, to the protests against the Vietnam War, to the 1968 Democratic Convention, to Alta, the Altamont Music Festival, all kinds of moments where people would say, OK, this is the mo- this is the moment where it all went bad. But Dylan says, no, 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 it started to go bad. 
that and with the death of Kennedy. And that was that was the crucial moment. So we're going to go back and we're going to kind of rethink our history through song from that moment forward. Timothy Hampton is a professor of comparative literature and French at the University of California at Berkeley and the author of several books, including Bob Dylan's Poetics, How the Songs Work. We're going to end the show in the next segment with maybe my least favorite example of JFK-related culture, and that would be Oliver Stone's movie. That's coming up. They march into Georgia in Dunbarton Play darkness and death will come when it comes They love me or leave me by the great bird town Play the bloodstained banner, play murder most foul we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Many thank yous today. I want to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer, who has uh, put in some extra time working on this show with us, Kyone Wolf, our interns, Joey Morgan and Letitia Peters. Today's episode is produced by Jonathan McPants. And now in our final segment, I want to introduce Sean O'Neill, a writer and contributor to Texas Monthly and the former editor-in-chief of the AV Club, and Philip Sheenan, the author of A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. We will We'll be spending this segment on Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. Frame 238, the fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Tate down by the underpass. The car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again, back to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left back and to the left. That, of course, is from the climactic Hour 7 of JFK, where you hear Kevin Costner as New Orleans DA, Jim Garrison, as Oliver Stone attempted to set the record straight by showing us Jim Garrison giving a speech, which he, in fact, never gave. But... I have a somewhat toxic attitude towards this movie. You might, I think I was described on Twitter as butthurt about it. Since we just played that clip, Phil Sheenan, if there's one thing that the movie JFK does a really good job of convincing almost anybody who watches it, it, it is of the invalidity of the single bullet theory. The way that Garrison, who did not give a speech about the ballistics at the end of the trial, the way that Garrison in the movie goes through that ballistic evidence and kind of mocks it makes you sit there wondering how any fool could have ever believed it. But in fact, that's not your position, right? Well, you know, as I say about that film, you know, Oliver Stone, I think, is a very, very fine filmmaker. He's a pretty lousy historian, though. And I will say I have to answer for those five minutes from the courtroom scene with Kevin Costner almost everywhere I go, because it really misrepresents a lot of the scientific evidence. It certainly misrepresents this thing called the single bullet theory. You know, if you leave the theater seeing the film, believing that it's not possible that one bullet went through President Kennedy and into the body of Governor Conley, the Texas governor who's in the car, as the Warren Commission staff found, when in fact it looks like that probably is what happened. Mr. Garrison has presented absolutely nothing publicly which would contradict our findings. I know of no fact which would refute the commission's conclusion that Lee Oswald was the lone killer. But again, that film created so much of a furor 
1991 that I've got to be grateful to it because the furor is what's resulting in the release of these hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. Absolutely. It did, it did change the whole calculus here. So Sean O'Neill, first of all, how old were you when you first watched JFK? I was 13 years old the first time, and I was there opening night. I begged my mother to take me on opening night, so I was, I was there when the lights went down, and I actually saw it in Dallas, so it felt very much like a big moment for me. I, I considered it my Harry Potter in some ways. Right, so, but if you're the kind of kid who's at 13 in 1991 begging his mother to take him to the Oliver Stone JFK movie, that would suggest that you were already on a certain kind of path as opposed to having been set upon one by Oliver Stone in his movie. That's true. I mean, I had grown up, you know, 30 minutes away from Dallas. I took a weird sort of civic pride in being the city that almost killed Kennedy, being next door to it anyways. And I wrote a paper in sixth grade that was about the Warren Commission report, totally blew the doors off it in my two-page report that I wrote when I was 11, and spent the next couple of years being very much obsessed with the JFK assassination. So by the time the movie came out, I was, I was very ready to see these, what I regret saying now were almost characters in my, in my mind, you know, the, the babushka lady, the umbrella man, these kinds of figures that I just read about, but I've seen them sort of brought to life on the big screen. You know, I think one of the things that this movie did, in addition to what Philip Sheenan said, was upended our conventional thoughts about authority. Not that they hadn't been upended in lots of other ways already by Vietnam and Watergate and, and the initial wave of distrust of the Warren Commission's findings. But, but I mean, this movie, kind of the way... Dan Brown's, uh, the movie version of The Da Vinci Code, you know, I, I, a lot of people who saw that and said, really, you mean the stuff in the Bible might not be true? There might be like this whole counter narrative or, or, or non-canonical story about Jesus and Mary Magdalene and stuff like that. You know, that for a lot of people seeing this movie, Sean, was like sort of seeing this this whole new set of information or a whole new set of eyes to put on information. You can't trust people you should be able to trust. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the the I believe it's a 14-page monologue that Donald Sutherland unspools as Mr. X there when he's talking to Kevin Costner on the bench, and in that in that sequence, I think is buried a lot of the the seeds of what became sort of the the, the paranoid X Files sort of hunt for the truth that that kind of defined the 90s. And seeing that as a 13-year-old, especially when you're just getting this first taste of maybe institutions don't have all the answers, maybe grown-ups are not to be trusted. It really is a, has a powerful impact on you. They'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, coat over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. And, you know, my mother was a, a forward newspaper reporter, and one of her good friends was Jim Mars, the man who wrote Crossfire, the book that formed a lot of the basis of Oliver Stone's screenplay for JFK. And I got my book signed by him, and the first thing he wrote on the author page was, you know, always question authority, which is the coolest thing you could ever hear as a 13-year-old. Right. So Phil Sheenan, since he mentions the Donald Sutherland thing, so I rewatched JFK last night, much to my dissatisfaction. And the Donald Sutherland thing was so, so Jim Garrison, Kevin Costner goes to Washington, D.C. and has this cherry blossom festooned surreptitious meeting with this unknown Colonel X who tells him all kinds of stuff really fast. I have no trouble believing it's 14 pages. This happened, that happened, this happened. I was in New Zealand. The newspapers already knew about it before it even happened. How could that be? <laughs> if I were Jim Garrison, I would go, slow down, start over. I didn't get all that stuff. But Phil Sheenan, how much of that stuff has any real connection to the record as we understand it? Well, it certainly had a real connection to the, you know, the, by this point, there was a library of conspiracy theory books out there. And essentially what Stone did is he took every one of those theories and somehow introduced them to the conspiracy that the film portrays. And I'll tell you, at the end of the film, you can't really tell what that conspiracy is. It seems to be some sort of government-wide conspiracy involving the CIA, involving the Pentagon, to kill Kennedy, to make sure that the Vietnam War continued. I will say that the other problem with that film was the presentation of it. It was presented 
by the uh, major Hollywood studio as this is the truth. There were books that were issued by the studio along with it to say this is really what the truth is. And I can see where at this point in 1991, you know, after Watergate, after Iran-Contra, after everything that had that had made the public so cynical about being told the truth by the government, they were ready to embrace every possible conspiracy theory about the Kennedy assassination, which is what this Hollywood movie studio offered them. So, Sean, we have now had a conspiracy theorist in the White House, and I think there are some of us who would say, well, you could kind of draw a not unbroken line from one of these things to the other, and certainly maybe from Stone's movie to the notion that somebody with some pretty wacky ideas about the birthplace of Barack Obama could get elected president himself. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I took a very anti-authoritarian stance as a teenager, and somehow I ended up on the side of actual authoritarians. And it's all because of that sort of seed of mistrust that was sort of planted by the popularization of JFK and this belief that the government is lying to you, the idea of a deep state existing. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that fuels people like Roger Stone, making sure people are confused enough that they don't know exactly who is the establishment, who to trust. And that sort of, you know, chaos that They've created someone like Donald Trump can come forward and say, well, I am the answer. I am the anti-establishment person. So, yes, it is in some ways like a horseshoe shape. You know, you have this far left paranoid conspiracy that almost intersects with the far right paranoid conspiracy and may definitely benefit from it. You realize that you're damaging the credibility of the country, possibly destroying it? Let me ask you, let me ask you, is a government worth preserving when it lies to the people? Are you trying to convince us to become a dangerous country, sir, when you cannot trust anyone anymore, when you cannot tell the truth? I say let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Come on, you Well, I want to say thank you to Philip Sheenan and Sean O'Neill, both of whom I trust explicitly and implicitly. Phil Sheenan, the the author of A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination. Sean O'Neill recently wrote about the impact of Oliver Stone's movie on his consciousness. And I want to end by reading one of the better things that I think has been written about this. It's from Don DeLillo's Libra. He's talking about Nicholas Branch, a CIA guy who's trying to figure out this thing. He writes, if we are on the outside, we assume a conspiracy is the perfect working of a scheme. Silent, nameless men with unadorned hearts. A conspiracy is everything that ordinary life is not. It's the inside game, cold, sure, undistracted, forever closed off to us. We are the flawed ones, the innocents, trying to make some rough sense of the daily jostle. Conspirators have a logic and a daring beyond our reach. All conspiracies are the same story of men who find coherence in some criminal act, but maybe not. His character, Nicholas Branch, thinks he knows better. He has learned enough about the days and months preceding November 22nd and enough about the 22nd itself to reach a determination that the conspiracy against the president was a rambling affair that succeeded in the short term due mainly to chance, deft men and fools, ambivalence and fixed will, and what the weather was like.